Good morning, everyone. We're so glad again, as always, that you join us today for worship. Uh, we're excited again to be here with you and to celebrate this Lord's Day and to go before him with thanksgiving and praise. Uh, we want to thank our worship team again for blessing us in song, as they always do. Uh, we, we love to hear the Lord's music. It blesses us and it puts us in the spirit and in the presence of God and the spirit of praise. And so we thank God for them. Uh, if you have your Bibles today, I'm going to ask you to join me again as we were last week in the Old Testament book of Habakkuk. Last week we were in chapter one. Today we'll begin in chapter two and we'll cover chapter two today. And so I'll read a few of those verses, not all of them. So I'm going to ask you to join me in Habakkuk chapter two. We'll be reading verses two through four and then only verse 20. I'll cover some of those other ones later. But for the purposes of our reading now, let's look at Habakkuk chapter, Habakkuk chapter two, verses two through four. When you find it, you'll find the following words. And the Lord answered me, write the vision, make it plain on tablets so he may run who reads it. For still the vision awaits its appointed time. It hastens to the end. It will not lie. If it seems slow, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, but the righteous shall live by his faith. And then verse 20 of chapter two says this. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. That's the word of the Lord. Uh, You'll recall that on last week, uh, we entitled our message from Habakkuk chapter one, when sight is suspect. So then today, as we discuss Habakkuk chapter two, I want to use for a subject when sight becomes sure, when sight becomes sure. Story is told of a couple who went to the airport to catch their flight. When they arrived at the gate, they were told by an agent to wait to board, wait to board the plane. So they proceeded to the waiting area and sat down. They didn't understand why they had been told to wait, didn't understand that, but they did it anyway. Other people began to board and as more people continued to board and time passed, the couple began getting frustrated. They were still waiting and waiting and still didn't know or understand why. After a while, their frustration turned to outright anger. They thought that they were being mistreated by the airline because they were being made to wait with absolutely no explanation at all or no, no time frame of when they would be able to board. By this time, after all this time had passed, by this time, everyone now had boarded the plane except them. They were going to be the last to board the plane, even though they were part of the first group of passengers to arrive at the gate. Uh, it, thoughts came to their mind. Uh, they thought that uh, they couldn't help but to think, what's going on here? What, what's happening? What, what's the problem? This is not right. Couldn't understand it. We were here early and we don't understand what the problem is. Finally, after everybody else was on the plane, their names were called and they were told they could finally board. 
The couple walked down the jetway and looked at their boarding passes to find their seat assignments. They were looking on their boarding passes to find out what, what seats they need to make their way to. And unbeknownst to them, as they were looking at the boarding passes, they noticed that they had been upgraded to first class. All of a sudden, you can imagine, all of a sudden, sorrow became laughter, sadness became joy, and they each developed a little extra pep in their step because they had been bumped up from coach to first class. They realized that sometimes, at that very moment, they suddenly realized that sometimes waiting isn't all that bad. That's what they realized. Uh, this situation, this situation is similar to that of Habakkuk in our text. You'll recall that when we left him last week, he had made his second of two complaints to God. Second of two complaints when we left him last week. The second complaint was raised because of the way God answered the first complaint. You'll recall that the first complaint or question that Habakkuk raised and expresses uh, in chapter is in chapter one, verses two through three. And this is what Habakkuk says in chapter one, verses two through three. Oh, Lord, how long shall I cry for help and you will not hear or cry to you violence and you will not save? Why? Do you make me see iniquity and why do you look idly at, at wrong? This was his first complaint. And as I shared with you last week, he asked God these questions for a reason. He asked God these, God these questions because it was a time of, for him, crisis. He asked him these questions because despite the outward appearances of religious revival, Judah society was marked by geopolitical upheaval, unbridled violence, destruction, strife, conflict, and even injustice. And so, again, in Habakkuk's mind and with his perception, what he saw was that it was a time of crisis. It was a time of crisis. God then answers his complaint in a way that Habakkuk just can't understand. This is what God says. It's in chapter one, verses five and six. God says this in five and six. Look among the nations and see Wonder and be astounded, for I am doing a work in your days. That's the word for us. I'm doing a work in your days that you would not believe if told. For behold, I'm raising up the Chaldeans, that bitter and hasty nation, who march through the breadth of the earth to seize dwellings, not their own. That was God's reply to Habakkuk's first complaint, his first question. So because this made no sense to Habakkuk, he then raises his second complaint. Here it is. God, how can you, being who you are, how can you use evil to judge the righteous? That's what essentially his second complaint is. And rather at this point, rather than waiting at an airport gate to catch a plane, he, Habakkuk, is now waiting like a sentinel in a watchtower to see how God would respond to him. That's where we left him last week in chapter two, verse one, on a watchtower, waiting to hear what God would say. 
And just like the couple at the airport, his anxiety is going to turn to joy by the time he gets to chapter three, because he's going to receive a bump up. He's going to receive an upgrade in his spirit from the response that God gives him in chapter two. He's going to feel like he got upgraded from coach to first class, especially the part of chapter two that's that that's covered in verse four. It's going to lift his spirit. It's going to take him to another place. And so then as we examine chapter two, I'd like to examine chapter two in three parts, three parts. I'd like to look at it in, like to break it down this way. First thing I want to talk to you about is the vision. And then after the vision, I want to deal with the warning. And then lastly, after we look at the vision and the warning, I want to talk about the shift. I want to talk about the shift. First, the vision. The vision is covered in verses two through five. I read it for you earlier, but here's what the first part uh, of verse two says. Verse two says this. And the Lord answered me. Here's that answer. Write the vision. That's what he says. Write the vision. And then later in verse three, he says it will surely come. This vision will surely come. God has decided that he is going to answer Habakkuk's question, his complaint with the vision. He's going to give him give him a vision as an answer. He's going to give him a vision uh, as as an answer to his complaint. And he wants Habakkuk to write it down. He wants it. He wants him to write it down. And when he writes it down, God says to him, make it large, make it bold, make it easy to see uh, so that even someone running past it uh, in a hurry will still be able to see this vision. That's that's what he says. That's how he is going to answer uh, this second complaint of Habakkuk's. Uh, The whole vision that God gives Habakkuk is covered in all of verses two through 20. Uh, But verses two through four serve as a preface, if you will, to this vision. Here is the vision in a nutshell. Let me tell you what it is. Here's the vision. The vision is this. God says the day is coming that the Babylonian conqueror will be overthrown. That's part of the vision. Second part, he really gives him in verse 14. And here it is. The day is also coming when God's kingdom will come on this earth. That's the vision in a nutshell. All those verses uh, uh, where God deals with that, it's really covered in those two statements. So in verse four, he deals with this issue. He deals with something in in verse four. Let's look at the first part of verse four again. Here's what it says. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him. First part, first, first thing he deals with uh, as 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 he gets into what the the meat of this vision is, he deals with this issue that a whole lot of us have to deal with. Right. This issue of pride. He deals with it. Pride is the sin that often begins a downward spiral because the proud person thinks they deserve better. That's what the proud person thinks. And they also think that they want more. They believe they want more. They have this desire to have more. And they make up in their mind that they're going to do anything they can to get it. This is who the Babylonians were. That's who God is describing in all of chapter two, actually. But to start this vision, he's describing their attitude, their makeup, who they are in verse four. Uh, They are prideful people. It's who he's describing. It was them and 
He says later that this pride that they have, that they are marked by, will lead to their destruction. It will lead to, the, to their destruction. But here's the upgrade. There's an upgrade in verse four. Here's Habakkuk's upgrade from coach first class. It's in verse four, too. It says this, the righteous shall live by faith. That's what calls Habakkuk to get a pep in his step. That's what lifts his spirits. That's what blesses him is that God says uh, the righteous shall live by faith. Pride, which is the non-ideal model for living, is contrasted here at the end of verse four with faith. Faith, which is God's ideal model for the believer. This part, uh, by the way, of verse four is a bright revelation of God's favor shining in the midst of dark condemnations of the Babylonians. He's made and he will make some condemnations against them. But this last part of verse four is a bright light in the midst of all of this darkness that God is sharing about the Babylonians. This statement is a legendary linchpin for Christian theology. This statement at the end of verse four, it is so much so that it is quoted three times in the New Testament, more than any other verse. It's quoted in Romans 1.17. It's quoted in Galatians 3.11. It's also quoted in Hebrews 10 and 38. It served also as the basis for the Protestant Reformation. It was, it was one of the things that launched the Reformation. And through Martin Luther's commentary on Galatians, uh, it was this second part of verse four of Habakkuk chapter two. It was almost solely responsible for the conversion of John Wesley. It has rich history in the faith. So God, by using this statement here and other places, what he says to us, what he says to them, to the recipients of Habakkuk's writing, to the recipients of Paul's writings, to the, to the recipients of those who read the writings of the writer of the book of Hebrews, what God essentially says to all of the recipients of this great, powerful phrase is this. He, he, he essentially says uh, through this statement, trust me and follow my instructions. I have everything under control. My agenda may be mysterious, but it's perfect. Everything I do is for two reasons. Number one, my glory. Number two, your good. That's the reason why God does everything that he does for his glory and for our good. God reveals to Habakkuk that while the wicked devour those more righteous, God is not silent. He's not silent. In fact, God is judging even while the wicked seem to enjoy their greatest success. He says, don't worry, the vision will come. It will surely come, this vision will. But there's a question. Question is this, what do we do? What do we do while waiting on the fulfillment of God's vision? What to do? What is it that should be done? Not just us, the recipients here of, of Habakkuk. What, what should be done while waiting on the fulfillment of this vision that God says will surely come? Uh, Habakkuk 
will help us with that answer to this question in chapter three. And that'll happen next week. For now, you have to come back next week and you'll get all of that. Make sure you join us for that. It's good stuff. For now, he warns us not of what to do, but he warns us of what not to do. So there's a warning in chapter two, right? It's what not to do. It's in verses six through 19 is the warning. And in six through 19, there are five woes, five woes listed in six through 19. These five woes expressly describe Babylon. It's for them. It describes who they are. Although the nation is not mentioned by name in any of these woes, uh, it is a description of who Babylon is. But they are also they also serve as universal warnings about things that everyone should avoid. It's a warning for us about things we should avoid while waiting on the fulfillment of God's promises, while waiting on the fulfillment of God's vision for us. There are some things Habakkuk says that the Babylonians were doing that we ought not do. All five of these woes are a downward spiral, which begins with the pride described in verses four and five. It goes downward from there. Here's the warning. Warning is this, while waiting on the Lord, don't capitulate to the culture. Don't be errantly influenced while waiting on the Lord. Being in Rome doesn't necessitate doing as the Romans. That's not a, that's not a necessity. Challenging cir circumstances should not equate to compromised character. No matter what's going on around you, don't compromise your character. Uh, and so he helps us with what not to do. Woe number one is against imperialism. It's in verses six through eight against. It's a woe against imperialism. Here's what here's how it starts off. I'm not going to read all of it. I'm going to read to you how it starts off. It says this woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. It's a woe against imperialism. What is that ruling and plundering? taking advantage of others by force. That's what the Babylonians were doing. By might, by political influence, or by economic oppression. It's what they were known for, imperialism. It was a woe against that. And then woe number two is in verses nine through 11. It's a woe against indulgence. And here is how it starts off. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high dishonest dealings in order to elevate himself oneself is what indulgence is all about the woe says woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high it is dishonesty for the purpose of elevating oneself that's what indulgence is to elevate themselves the babylonians trampled all over others in order to set themselves on high it was a woe against that. God says to us, as he said to the people that are recipients of Habakkuk's writing, don't get caught up in that. Don't get caught up in trampling over others in order to elevate oneself. Woe number three is against injustice. Number one, imperialism. Number two, indulgence. Number three, injustice is in verses 12 through 14. And here's how it starts off. It says, woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Injustice. 
my dear brothers and sisters, is the absence, <laughs> quite obviously, of justice. It means that justice has fled the scene. There is no justice. Uh, it's a violation of right or of the rights of another. It's unfairness. That's what injustice is. The Babylonians are condemned for building what they had through murder and through devastation. They wrecked havoc all over the land so that they could build what they had through injustice. The Babylonians are condemned for this. By the way, I need to share this with you. One doesn't necessarily have to be the actual perpetrator of such un unjust deeds to be guilty of injustice. You don't have to be the, the actual one that's doing, doing the injustice to be guilty of injustice. injustice. Why do I say that? Because silence in such times amounts to complicity. Silent, silence in such times amounts to complicity. It was Edmund Burke who said the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. And so injustice was one of the woes. Uh, and then uh, in verse 14, there's some good news in verse 14 uh, that, that, that's, that's wrapped up in this, in this third woe. There's good news in verse 14. The good news is that in verse 14, let me read it for you. It says this, uh, you, hold on, I'm sorry. It says this, that was chapter one, verse two, verse chapter two, verse 14 says this, for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. As the waters cover the sea, here's the good news uh, wrapped up in woe number three as good news, as, a, as, an, as an opportunity to be encouraged. Here it is. Thy kingdom will come. Thy will shall be done on earth as it is in heaven, and it will cover the earth as the sea or the waters cover the earth. God's kingdom shall come. And then woe number four. Woe number four is against immorality. It's in verses 15 through 17. And here is how it starts off. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drunk. Here. The Babylonians are pictured as a drunkard giving his neighbors wine to intoxicate them so that he may indulge in some evil wantonness and expose the victims to shame. This is woe number four, immorality. Don't fall for immorality. Don't fall into the trap of that. Woe number five is against idolatry. It's in verses 18 through 19. Verse 19 says this, part of it says this, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. Trusting, here's what woe number five is talking about, trusting in false gods while waiting on the God will leave one with no one to answer and to deliver when time, when the time comes to be delivered and the time comes that you're looking for an answer, idolatry will leave you empty. That's what Habakkuk's word was uh, as he described the Babylonians because they were an idolatrous people. And so the word for us is, and the word for the, the, the people of Judah was not to be like the Babylonians, even that even though difficulty was all around, not to capitulate to what everybody else was doing, but to hold fast and stand like that watchman on the wall, waiting to hear a word from God, waiting on the gate agent to say it's time to board. Here's your upgrade. That's what Habakkuk wants us to know. 
Right. Don't don't give in to any of these woes. And then as we come to the close of chapter two, I've, I've, I've shared with you about the vision, about the warning. I want to talk now about the shift. The shift takes place in one verse. The last verse of chapter two. This verse opens with the word but. The word but is how this verse opens. The English word but is an interesting word in that it can be used in a number of different ways. It can be used, uh, number one, as a preposition. It can also be used as an adverb. It can also be used as a noun. But the Hebrew word translated but here in this passage serves not as either of those, but it rather serves as a conjunction. And the conjunction is used to introduce a phrase or a clause contrasting with what has already been mentioned. And but here is a conjunction. The word but, the word but only appears twice in all three chapters, in all 56 verses, in all 1,475 words of the ESV translation of the book of Habakkuk, the word but only appears twice. And both times it appears, it's in chapter two. Both times this conjunction appears here in Habakkuk chapter two. As often is the case in scripture, it's very important because it signifies a shift. It signifies a shift. You may recall that the first time it's used here in verse uh, in this chapter was in verse four. We talked about it a minute ago. That famous, often quoted nugget of theological gold that encouraged the believer with the revelation and the shift of these are troubled times, but the righteous shall live by faith. And then the second and final time we see but is here in verse 20, where the shift is from meaningless idols made of wood, gold, silver, and all other, all other kinds of things, which are both anemic and impotent. By the way, they, they, they have no meaning. They can't do anything. There's a shift. There's a shift from those meaningless idols to Yahweh who is in his holy place of authority, presiding over all the earth and all the universe. Because he is superior, he is supreme, and he is supreme and superior to all of the gods and idols. Because of that, he deserves nothing less than total reverence, respect, and praise. That's what he deserves. I love the way Richard Smallwood puts it in his song, Total Praise. This is what he says, you know the song. He says this, Lord, I will lift mine eyes to the hills, knowing my help is coming from you. Your peace you give me in times of storm. You, he says, are the source of my strength. You are the strength of my life. You are all of that. I lift my hands in total praise to you. This is the same way Habakkuk is feeling right about now at this point. His sight, his perspective has shifted from being suspect to now being sure, which launches him into a prayer of praise in chapter three that will end with three of the most beautiful, encouraging verses in all of Scripture. If you join us next week, we're going to close out Habakkuk looking at this powerful prayer that he prays. So with that, let me leave you with this final thought. Knowing that God should act doesn't mean 
we know when or how he will act. But our faith in him and our experiences with him should reassure us that he will. Question is, he will what? He will whatever he needs to do. You can fill in the blank. He will. Our faith should lead us and reassure us to the, in, in that. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word. Thank you, Lord God, that we uh, are able to see with clear vision because we know who you are, Lord God. We trust you even in difficult times like the ones we're living in now. We trust you. We don't know how you're going to do it, when you're going to do it, but we know based on our faith and based on our past experience with you that you will. And we thank you. We thank you. We thank you in Jesus name. Amen. Um, listen, I want to invite any of you that are watching. I want to invite you into a life changing relationship with Jesus because he can wipe the tears. He can make the crooked way straight. He can, he will deliver, set free and make whole. And so if you don't know him, this is a great time right now. Would you pray and ask him to come into your heart? And then as I always say, as we close out every Sunday, if you do that, let us know, because we want to rejoice with you. We want to celebrate with you. And then we want to welcome you and, and be able to fellowship together with you. We look forward to that time we can come together again. Until then, we'll continue to have service this way. We hope that you'll join us next Sunday, same time, 10 a.m. Uh, and we'll be here looking forward to another blessed Lord's Day. Uh, now, unto him who's able to keep us from falling and to present us faultless before his presence with exceeding joy. To the only wise God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, dominion, and power, both now and forever. God bless you. We'll see you later on next week. Hopefully you'll join us. God bless.